have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22 this morning. It has been said that the greatest preacher that America has ever produced, perhaps even the greatest theologian that America has ever produced, was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards who died shortly before the American Revolution but ministered his entire life in the area of New England. I was first, I think, introduced to Jonathan Edwards of all places through my junior high English class. It was a class on American literature, and quite surprising to me, there was reprinted in full perhaps the most famous sermon that Jonathan Edwards has ever did ever preach. His text was on Deuteronomy 32.25, their foot shall slide in due time. And picking up the theme of that passage, that is the sinfulness of man as we face the judgment of God, Edwards employed the imagery of a tiny spider hanging by a single thread of webbing over a roaring flame. He said at any moment that spider might let go, that line of web might break and that spider might fall into the raging fire and be consumed. Likewise, he said, at any moment, we sinners are condemned by God justly for our sin and we also might be consumed by the fires of hell. But Edwards was not writing to bring guilt and condemnation on his listeners. Instead, he was trying to encourage them by God's grace because the whole point of his sermon was this, your foot has not yet slipped. Your foot has not let slid down the hill into the fires of hell. God is patient and gracious with sinners. He allows us to live year after year after year in vanity, all the while calling us to flee vanity, to flee sin and find our salvation in Him. That sermon was titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. This morning we see quite the opposite in our text, we see God in the hands of angry sinners. In recent weeks, we have arrived at the passion narrative, that is, the account of Jesus last week before His cross and resurrection. We've seen His final days of teaching and fellowship with His disciples and more intimately His apostles. We've seen His institution of the Lord's Supper. We've seen His final agonizing prayer in Gethsemane as He considers the cup of God's wrath that He will take up and drink down for His people, becoming not the object of love, but now the object of wrath from His heavenly Father. Last week we saw Jesus arrest by religious leaders through the betrayal of a kiss from one of His closest Friends, And today we begin to see the treatment that Jesus experiences at the hand of the religious leaders after his arrest. And here we not only see the terrible sinfulness of humanity, who is not humble, who is not patient, who is not gracious towards their holy God. And yet we also still see the patience and grace of the living God who willfully places himself in the hands of sinful people. Follow along as I begin reading from Luke 22 at verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, Prophesy! Who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. 
When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council, and they said to him, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. This is the word of God. Hear it and believe. Jesus has surrendered himself into the hands of the authorities. Remember, we saw Jesus was not, we saw this over the last several weeks, Jesus is not here, just the victim of fate or cruel circumstance. He is not simply uh, left to fend for himself in the hands of cruel and wicked men. Instead, even here, Jesus is Lord. And yet, as Lord, he has taken it upon himself to be delivered up, to allow himself to be taken into the custody of wicked men, surrendering all of the rights and privileges and honors that he deserves as Lord. Question is, why would he do that? Why would he surrender such things that he alone is worthy of? And the answer is simply this, that which we have seen time and time again for the glory of his loving heavenly father and the good of his people. He allows himself to be treated this way because this treatment is what is to be expected on his way to the cross where he will make provision for sins, where he will secure an eternal redemption for all who believe. And as we consider what he goes through here, we remember he went through this for us. He went through this for you. He endured this on your behalf. So what did he endure for us? First we see that Jesus was ridiculed in suffering. Jesus was ridiculed in suffering. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They also blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. You know, one of the aims of good preaching should be to help those of us living comfortably in the 21st century to uh, have ourselves folded into the, the life and culture and worldview of the people and situation or whatever passage we find ourselves in. To, to, to find ourselves transported back to the there and then that we might understand God's word for the here and now. And sometimes that means uh, great leaps in our imagination and understanding, but this is not a text like that. It is not a far jump from the now to the then when we see the kind of beating and physical suffering that Jesus endured. This was not legal in Jesus' day any more than it would be legal in our day. That doesn't mean they had the same kind of innocent until proven guilty standard that our legal system embraces, but it does mean that what we are seeing here is not a common thing. We should not see this and think, oh, everybody was treated that way. In fact, it was against the Jewish law. It was even against Roman law for a prisoner who had not yet been held for trial to suffer any physical violence or mistreatment whatsoever. As we have said before, we saw Jesus in Gethsemane, this beating that takes place here, though, is not an atoning work. 
Jesus is not at this moment suffering for your sins at the hands of these men in the same way that He will suffer for your sins under the wrath of His heavenly Father. Nevertheless, He willingly endured this sinful treatment on the way to the cross where He would make atonement for your sins. Notice also that Jesus' suffering wasn't merely physical, it was also emotional as well. Luke says the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him. They were demeaning to Jesus. They were seeking to dehumanize him, to make him feel less than human. One thing we might be wondering is what exactly were they mocking him about? Well, remember, he is in Jewish custody at the time. And so um, just from what we've already seen in the Gospel of Luke, all manner of things might have been on their lips as they mocked. Perhaps it was his accent as a Galilean. Imagine someone, if you've ever heard them from the deep south, perhaps Alabama or Arkansas, find themselves in the midst of New York City at a business deal. You can imagine the kind of snickering that would take place later uh, when they're gone. Likewise here, Jesus is from Galilee. He is from the Jewish equivalent of the sticks. And you can imagine them mocking him for the way that he talked, for believing that he would ever be of messianic material, that he would have any kind of authority or privilege in Jerusalem when he is from such a place. Perhaps they mocked him for teaching in ways that, that derided and put down and showed foolish the Pharisees and the scribes as if somehow this untrained carpenter that they believed was an illegitimate child born out of wedlock could ever be the Messiah or no better than the religious leaders in Israel. Whatever the nature of the words, the mocking continued as they blindfolded him and kept striking him, asking him, prophesy, who is it that hit you? An ancient form of the game Blind Man's Bluff, which is really no game at all, they took turns striking Jesus likely with their, their bare fists, ridiculing and jeering, challenging him to identify the perpetrators of the crime. Jesus was thought to be a prophet by the people. Now show us that you are a prophet. Show us that you know what no regular man knows. Show us that you can see what no regular man can see. Again, you need to understand that this was not in any way typical of the treatment of prisoners in that day. It was unthinkable. And therefore, we see it as, as something that was especially cruel and demeaning. We understand these men had an axe to grind with Jesus. They had long harbored anger towards him for his teaching and his ministry, and now they are free to let loose in the sinfulness of their hearts. They are free to let go their rage and their anger and their resentment against him. And in all of this, they committed blasphemy against Jesus. That's what Luke says in verse 65. We see that they said many other things against him, blaspheming him. How ironic that those who condemned Jesus as a blasphemer were themselves the worst offenders of blasphemy to ever walk the earth. Here are God's covenant people who do not merely defy God's law or reject God's wisdom. They mock God to his face. Like some twisted parable, those who are created turn on their creator 
and act in despicable ways towards him, not with gratefulness and love and worship as they should, but with violence and ridicule. As the creator, we understand Jesus had the power in that moment to wipe all of those men out of existence. He had the power to make it so that they were never even born. But that is not what he does. He could have identified each man who was beating him. He could have identified them not just by name, but by the physical scars they might have borne on their body, by the number of hairs on their head, by the pattern that existed in their fingerprints. But that is not what he did. Instead, though he was oppressed and afflicted, he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so Jesus simply endured the ridicule, just as Isaiah the prophet predicted. Matthew Henry says, We are not told that he said anything but bore everything. Hell was let loose and he suffered it to do its worst. A greater indignity could not be done to the blessed Jesus. They that condemned him for a blasphemer were themselves the vilest blasphemers that ever were. Now for anyone who now looks at Jesus with the eyes of faith, this entire scene is nauseating. But before we have feelings of anger and hatred towards these men, remember that we have committed similar sins. No, none of us have physically struck Jesus. None of us have blasphemed him to his face. But how many times like these men were we entertained by things that Jesus condemns as sin? How many times have we ridiculed things that Jesus calls holy? How many times have we disregarded the fount of wisdom that is found in God alone to embrace the folly of the world? There is a famous painting by the Dutch artist Rembrandt called The Three Crosses. If you haven't seen that painting before, you can Google it if you're interested. Look it up online. It is his depiction of Golgotha, Jesus hanging on the cross between two thieves at the very moment of his death. By his use of light and dark, your eye, when you look at that picture, will be immediately drawn to the center of the picture as Jesus himself hangs on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And then your eye will be drawn down to the crowd surrounding Jesus and the faces of those there, some in agony, some jeering, some in pain and anguish, wondering what has taken place all around the foot of the cross. In the end, if you continue to stare at this painting, your eye will begin to drift to the farthest edges where there is a depiction of a man on the edge almost hidden in the shadows. And art critics tell us that this was a representation of Rembrandt himself. Though living centuries later, he portrayed himself in that scene for he recognized his sins helped to nail Christ to that cross on which he died. Likewise for us, we cannot read this passage and simply condemn the men who did these things to our Lord. We need to see ourselves among them. We need to see ourselves as a part of them. We need to see ourselves in the same light as we see them. For we ourselves are guilty of sin, of blasphemy, of mockery of our Lord Jesus. Especially as 
those who have claimed his name and yet continue to sin sometimes in wretched and vile ways. We need to see ourselves as those who are guilty and in need of repentance, just as they were. Jesus was ridiculed in suffering. He was also rejected in unbelief. Jesus was rejected in unbelief. Luke says, when day came, so we remember that Jesus was taken into custody around midnight. And so for about five hours, this kept up. About 5 a.m. is when uh, daytime was reckoned as, reckoned as coming in those days. And so when day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council. These men were recognized as the greatest spiritual leaders in Israel. They were to be the pace setters, the shepherds, the standards of holiness, the most godly of men in Israel. And notice that as Jesus is brought before them, they say, if you are the Christ, tell us. If you're really the Messiah, if you've really come to be the promised Savior and King, then just be clear and tell us. What does Jesus say? How does he answer? He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. If I ask you, you will not answer. What is he saying? He says, look, even if I at this moment said, I am the Christ, you're not going to believe me. How does he know they won't believe? Some might argue that Jesus is denying them the chance to repent and believe. How does Jesus know that they will not believe because he has shown them for the last three years that he is the Christ and they have not believed. These are the men who knew best the scriptures given to them by God. These are the men who knew the prophetic signs better than anyone else in Israel. These are the men who took an interest in and followed the life and ministry of Jesus, heard him teach, saw his miracles. They saw the evidence screaming, this is your Christ. And they refused to believe because he wasn't the Christ they wanted. He wasn't the Messiah they were wanting. He wasn't the king that they wanted above them. And so once again, what we see is that faith is never merely about evidence. Evidence can play a part. Information has to play a part as we tell someone verbally the gospel. Unless they, we explain to them who Jesus is, no one will believe in him but evidence about why it is rational, why it is highly likely that we should trust in Jesus because he is who he said he is from historical reliability standpoints of the scriptures and so many other things, will never by itself result in faith. These men bear evidence of that. They saw clearly who he was and they rejected him. And in rejecting Jesus as the Christ, they rejected again his authority over them. They rejected his authority over them. And it's amazing when you think about where Israel has been, where they've come and where they are now, this is the problem they have had their entire existence collectively as a nation. It's not to say that individually there were not Israelites that... that accepted the authority of God. There, there certainly were. There are many godly men and women throughout the history of Israel. But by and large, Israel struggled from the moment Moses went up on that mountain to receive the law until this very moment as Jesus stands before them as the Christ to accept the authority of God over their lives. We remember in 1 Samuel when 
The people begin to cry out to the prophet, give us a king like all the other nations. That's what we need. We need a king like everybody else. And, and Samuel gets distraught. And you remember what God says to him? He says, it's not that you're not doing a good job leading the people, giving them my word. The problem is they're rejecting me. They don't want me as king, which is why they're begging for a human king. And even here, what do we see? God himself in the flesh. The true king of Israel has come in Jesus. He stands before them and once again, they reject him. He isn't the kind of king they want, so they kill him. And they will not accept him. They reject his authority. They also reject him as divine. They also reject him as being divine. Jesus says, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. Now, Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, and we've seen him do this before. In fact, in other gospels, we see that is his favorite title for himself. Do you remember where he draws that title from? It's from the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. In chapter 9, the prophet Daniel is given a vision, and he says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days. And was presented before him. So you have this man, this son of man. And he comes before the ancient of days that is God himself. He's presented before God. And to the son of man was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So think about what Daniel sees about how mysterious this would have been for him. The one true God is reigning from the glories of heaven. And this one who was like a son of man is presented before him. And God takes from his own authority, from his own right to rule, and gives to the son of man a kingdom that will encompass not just Israel, but the entirety of the world. He hands over the reins of power to the Son of Man, granting Him this dominion that is everlasting, a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Then it goes on to see that all of humanity and angelic beings alike fall down and worship at the feet of this Son of Man, something that only is reserved for God Himself. All of this pointing us to the fact that this Son of Man figure is a divine figure. In the fullness of time and revelation of God, we know this Son of Man is God the Son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh. And Jesus is saying, when He says, you will see the Son of Man, He's saying, I am that divine figure from the book of Daniel. I am the Son of Man that you will one day see reigning over all things at the right hand of my Father. Now even here, we just have to stop and acknowledge that for decades, probably over a century, maybe even two centuries, Secular critics and liberal scholars have claimed that Jesus never said he was divine. Jesus never claimed to be God in the flesh. That was something that the disciples later put in his mouth who later preached and claimed about him. And that's why on PBS and the History Channel and on Dateline NBC, you can find these shows with titles something like The Jesus of History and The Christ of Faith, as if those are two separate things. Who Jesus really was, the man who walked in history, is totally different from the, the individual that is worshipped and praised and lived for today. But here, among one of the many places, Jesus himself will not allow us to make that distinction. What does he do? He says, do you know that man that Daniel saw? That glorious son of man who was ushered before the throne of God? 
God alone who has the right to rule and He was given the right to rule. He was given the right to rule all things. And then because He was given that right to rule, He was given that everlasting kingdom. All of creation bowed down and did the one thing they should only give to God, full, heartfelt, joyful worship. That's me. That's me. Jesus wasn't less than human, but He was certainly more than human. He was divine. And we know that that is how we ought to understand him because that is how his critics understood him. They all said, are you the son of God then? And he says to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from our own lips. They're looking for something to accuse him of and they have it. Our English translation of verse 70 is frankly a little weak. It makes him sound coy, as if to say, well, you said it, I didn't. That's not what the original is. The original is emphatic. Yes, you have said what is true. You have said precisely what I have been saying. I am the Christ. I am the Son of Man. I am the Son of God. And this is why they respond the way that they do. Do they understand the full ramifications of that, that we do now? with 2,000 years of Christian history, with the, 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 the God-inspired writings of the apostles? Probably not. But they understood it enough to believe that Jesus was a blasphemer, and for that they would condemn him. But even in knowing what is to come, Luke shows us that Jesus was resolved to obey. Jesus was resolved to obey. When Jesus says, from now on the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God, we have to consider how is Jesus going to go from imprisoned in the hands of sinful men to seated at the right hand of the throne of God? How will this transition take place? This is crucial because at this moment, He is being judged by humanity. That's the position that Jesus is in, being judged by these religious leaders, but he is pointing forward and saying, one day you're going to see me at the right hand of God that is at the place of judgment, judging you, judging all of the earth. How does he get from one to the other? Because here, Jesus' authority is not being acknowledged at all. Uh, those of you that remember your World War II history studies or perhaps have seen documentaries in recent years know that at the, at the Nuremberg trials that followed where the Nazi war criminals were put on trial, many of them as their kind of uh, way of not engaging at all in any kind of defense said, we do not ignore, acknowledge the authority of this court over our lives. They do not have the authority to stand in judgment over us for what we did. And of course they were found guilty and executed anyway. It didn't, didn't really matter. And much the same is taking place here. These Jewish leaders are looking at Jesus and saying, we, we, we do not recognize you as the Christ. We do not recognize you as having any authority over, over us. We are an authority over you. But what does Jesus say? You're still going to face execution one day. You can deny my authority. You can buck my authority. You can claim that you do not want me as your king. But one day, you will be forced to recognize me as the Christ. One day, you'll be forced to recognize my authority. One day, you will not stand in judgment over me, but I will stand powerfully, finally, eternally in judgment over you when you see me at the right hand of my heavenly Father. Jesus already preached against their lack of faith and their sinful mistreatment of God's law. He has judged them and they have been found wanting just in the last three years. 
But in the midst of that condemnation, Jesus has also issued an invitation. Here is your sin. Repent and believe and God will forgive you. You believe that you are children of Abraham. Let me tell you, you can be real children of Abraham. You can have the kind of faith that he had in God and so be saved from the condemnation that awaits you for their sins. But what do they do? They reject him. They reject him as the authority over their lives. And Jesus says, one day that rejection will come to an end as I sit in supreme judgment over you. Now again, how is that going to happen? How will the reversal take place? In the end, Jesus will be exalted to the right hand of God to judge the living and the dead because he was obedient to the Father's will. God was the one who called on Jesus to take on flesh of humanity and humble himself from the glories of heaven to be found in the glory of the cross. And the Son willingly, lovingly, joyfully obeyed the Father's plan that the Father might be glorified in the salvation of sinners and the ingathering of a people for his pleasure. And it was that obedient resolve, even to the point of death for sinners, that God takes pleasure in and therefore raises Christ up from the dead and seats him at the place of supreme authority and judgment. And so if Jesus is looking ahead and sees what is coming, his exaltation to the Father, he is saying it shows that I have been approved of God, that I will be successful in my ministry, that I will go to the cross, that I will make atonement for sin, and that I will rise again from the dead. Jesus says, I am resolved to obey and accomplish the reason for which I have been sent into this world, to seek and save the lost. And that is exactly what he will do. And he will not only be obedient to the Father, but he will also become the object of faith for all who will be redeemed. When I was growing up, one of the songs that we used to sing all the time at the end of our services was a hymn called, I Surrender All. It's a song of commitment to faith in Christ for salvation. But understand that before we can ever surrender to God's call, we must acknowledge that Jesus first surrendered to God's call. Jesus surrendered all the privileges of his glory, his dignity, and his worth, allowing himself to be shamed and beaten on the way to open up the way of salvation for sinners on the cross. And the last few months, another pastor and another church has been reflecting on this, and he took that hymn, I Surrender All, and he inverted it. He took the same rhyme scheme and the lyrics and everything, and he inverted to say, it's not just that I am needing to surrender all to Christ, but I must acknowledge that first Christ surrendered all for me. And so at their church they sing, all Lord Jesus you surrendered, all to me you freely gave, all my sin you bravely shouldered, all for me my life to save. All Lord Jesus, you surrendered all your rights you left behind, trading might for humble weakness for the good of all mankind. All Lord Jesus, you surrendered all for me, your enemy. Worldly pleasures I was seeking, still Lord, you were seeking me. All your life is all my merits, all your death my ransom paid. Now I feel no condemnation, just a love that cannot fade. Christ surrendered all, Christ surrendered all. All for me and my salvation, Christ surrendered all.
as we reflect on these hours of great indignity and suffering in Jesus' life. We've seen him demeaned and abused and mistreated in shameful and unimaginable ways. We must remember this. Jesus endured that indignity for you and for your salvation. Therefore, today as in every day, do not reject him as the Christ. Do not reject his authority, but turn to him. Find in him one willing to forgive. If he is willing to endure so much for you, will he not forgive your sins? Turn to him and believe. Father, that is our prayer this morning, that we might see not only your love, but the love of Christ for sinners as he surrendered all things and endured the greatest indignity imaginable at the hands of sinful men on his way to the cross, where he would die and offer his life as a ransom that we might be saved. Father, we pray, Lord, that we would respond in faith and obedience, that we would see him as Lord and an authority over us, that, Father, more than just a a orthodox form of confessing our faith, we would believe and live as if Jesus is Lord. That's our prayer. We pray it in his name. Amen.